Well, hello and welcome to the iFormerX podcast. This is Stuart Haynes, the editor-in-chief of iFormerX and the host of this podcast. I'm grateful to you for using iFormerX to keep abreast of the latest evidence that informs ambulatory care practice and encouraging your peers, colleagues, residents, and students to join our community of practice. Membership in iFormerX is free to health professionals and anyone studying or training to become a health professional. So if you're not already a member, please visit our website at iformerx.org and sign up today. In today's episode, I get to talk to Megan Supple and Madison Yates about the 2022 ACC AHA HFSA, that's a mouthful, complicated way to say the guidelines for management of heart failure. As many of our listeners know, there's been significant advancements in the treatment of heart failure uh, over the last three to five years. And the 2022 heart failure guidelines were a much needed update, summarizing and evaluating the latest clinical trial data. Dr. Supple and Dr. Yates are both cone heads, and I believe that's the term of endearment that graduates of the cone health residency program call themselves. Cone Health, for those of you who don't know, is in Greensboro, North Carolina, and has a very well-established PGY2 ambulatory care residency program. Dr. Supple is a cardiology specialist and has been a frequent contributor to iFormerX, and she's a member of our editorial board. And Dr. Yates is currently a PGY2 ambulatory care resident and a first-time contributor. So, Megan, it is great to have you back on the iFormerX podcast today. And Madison, I hope you continue to contribute for many, many years to come. Welcome. Thanks for having us. It's great to be back. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So, Madison, let's start our discussion by talking about the new classification schema. Previously, patients were classified as having either heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or preserved ejection fraction, and the recommended treatments differed based on the heart failure classification. Now, there are four different classifications. So, Let's examine those four different classifications and how they're defined. And what is the rationale behind this change in the naming nomenclature? So these four classifications are heart failure with reduced, improved, mildly reduced, and preserved ejection fractions. Starting with the ones that we're probably more familiar with, patients with HEF-REF or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction have an EF of 40% or less. And then patients with HEF-PEF have preserved ejection fractions of 50% or greater, and they have evidence of increased left ventricle filling pressures. Heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction is the first of our updated classifications in these guidelines. Here, EF is 41 to 49%, and there is evidence of increased LV filling pressures as well. Before this guideline update formally made this a classification, it's sometimes been called heart failure with mid-range ejection fraction since they fall somewhere in the middle of HEF-REF and HEF-PEF. But because the ejection fraction is lower than normal, the guideline chose to classify this instead as heart failure with mildly reduced EF. Patients are in a dynamic position here as either improving from HEF-REF or deteriorating to it. 
we didn't used to have much data in this population, but with Emperor Preserved, including patients with an EF greater than 40%, and now the DELIVER trial that was published since this guideline update, with about a third of patients having an EF of 41 to 49% in these two studies, we have data showing the benefit of SGLT2 inhibitors in this population, so it really deserved having its own classification. And then lastly, heart failure with improved ejection fraction is the second updated classification. These patients previously had an EF of 40% or less, meeting the HEFREF criteria, but now have an EF greater than 40%. And this is really to be thought of as a subset of HEFREF. They chose the terminology of improved rather than recovered EF because the structural abnormalities of the heart may still be present and EF could drop again to below 40% in the future. It was important for this to be made a classification to solidify the importance of continuing GDMT in these patients to prevent relapse of LV dysfunction. Likely the reason their EF improved was because of these therapies, so they should be continued to hopefully maintain that benefit. We can think of this as a similar concept to when we treat other chronic disease states. For example, when we bring a patient's A1C to goal, we don't consider them cured of diabetes and stop all of their antihyperglycemic medications since the medications are what made their disease state controlled in the first place. So the same is true here. And until the DELIVER trial, we didn't really have studies that specifically included or classified patients as having an improved EF, but 18% of the patients included in the DELIVER trial met the criteria of having heart failure with improved EF, which is important to show that the addition of an SGLT2 inhibitor is still beneficial in this population if it had not yet been added to their other GDMT. So those are our four classifications. Megan, hopefully everyone in the iFormerX audience is aware that there are now four classes of guideline recommended medications that should be prescribed to most patients with heart failure. Specifically, nearly every patient should be taking what you called in your commentary the fantastic four, which consists of some form of RAS inhibition, preferably an ARNI, a beta blocker, a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, or MRA, and finally, an SGLT2 inhibitors. So rather than delineate when all four classes should be used, let's talk about when they shouldn't. Are there specific patient populations who shouldn't be on all four classes? So Madison gave a great overview of patients who should be on GDMT with all four classes of heart failure meds, but there are a few patient groups where this becomes a bit more challenging. Patients on dialysis can be a lot tougher to manage since SGLT2 inhibitors are contraindicated and MRAs have very limited data, so they typically aren't used here either. Patients with hyperkalemia or hypotension can also be pretty challenging to either start on, maintain, or titrate to goal doses of their ACE inhibitor, ARB, ARNI, or MRA. Patients with true drug allergies like angioedema with a RAS inhibitor also have safety concerns that can outweigh drug benefits. 
We also see additional barriers with medication access too. So half of the recommended med classes are branded and navigating the potential cost can be pretty challenging, especially for patients with Medicare insurance plans who may have to deal with deductibles and the donut hole. But for patients with HEFREF, all four medication classes are recommended to start as soon as safely possible, typically without a strong preference for order, which is in contrast to patients with heart failure with mid-range or preserved EF, where the data for SGLT2 inhibitors is a bit stronger with the level 2A recommendation than the data for other med classes like an ACE inhibitor, ARB, RNA, beta blocker, or MRA, which all have a level 2B recommendation. So, Madison, many patients might need additional add-on therapies. These are not medications that should be used in most patients with heart failure, but only in specific situations. What are some of these add-on therapies, and when should we consider using them? Yes, we do have a few add-on agents outside of our Fantastic Four, as we like to call them, that can be considered in certain patient populations. First, hydralazine in combination with isosorbide dinitrate is recommended to improve symptoms and reduce morbidity and mortality in our African-American patients with HEFREF and an NYHA class of three or four. Ivabertine can be considered in patients with an EF of 35% or less, NYHA class 2 or 3, and if they have a heart rate that is still above 70 beats per minute despite having a maximally tolerated beta blocker on board. And then another key here is that the patient must be in normal sinus rhythm. Treatment with Ivabertine could provide some additional risk-lowering of CV death and heart failure hospitalization in this population. For patients who have an EF less than 45% in NYHA class 2, 3, or 4, they have recent heart failure hospitalization or IV diuretic use and an elevated BNP, so if all of those things are met, then Versigawatt could be added on to offer some mild benefit in reducing CV death or heart failure hospitalization. And then lastly, digoxin can be considered in patients who still continue to be symptomatic on GDMT. The thought here is that this could improve their symptom control and exercise tolerance as well as reduce hospitalizations, but keeping in mind that most of our data showing this benefit preceded the use of GDMT. The 2022 guidelines, Megan, were helpful in that they now include some information about the cost-effectiveness of treatments, calling some medications high-value treatments. Can you give us a quick rundown on what treatments are considered high-value and how the guideline development panel came to that conclusion? The updated guidelines include these value statements, and those are for recommendations where we have high-quality, cost-effectiveness studies of the intervention that have already been published. So for patients with HEF-REF, treatment with beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and MRAs all provide high economic value. For African-American patients with HEFREF who are optimized on first-line therapies, the combination of hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate also provide high economic value. These recommendations aren't very surprising since these medications have profound cardiac benefits and they're generic, except for Bidil, but its individual components can be prescribed as generic meds to reduce the cost. I was a bit surprised to see that RNAs are included in the high economic value group, but that SGLT2 inhibitors are listed as intermediate economic value, even though medication costs tend to be similar between the two. And that was based on a few different analyses of the Paradigm heart failure trials. 
that consistently found costs per quali of less than $60,000, which is the guideline benchmark for high value, as long as Entresta was continued for at least 27 months. And that's because that was the trial duration for the Paradigm HF. Shorter treatment duration would have been considered intermediate value, though. There were two analyses that evaluated the economic value of SGLT2 inhibitors based on the DAPA-HF trial, and they found cost per quality between $60,000 and $90,000, which is considered that intermediate value. But the guidelines then go on to state that there is a wide range of costs currently seen with DAPA glufosin, with analyses also estimating a cost per quality below $60,000, which would make it high value. So for branded meds, I think it is a bit tougher since out-of-pocket costs for patients can vary so much depending on their insurance. If we can start a patient on either of these med classes at an affordable copay, definitely go for it since the cardiac benefit is there. But it is really helpful to see national guidelines considering medication costs now. Well, Madison, one of the things that I like about the 2022 heart failure guidelines is a greater emphasis on prevention. So let's talk about who's most at risk for developing heart failure and what are some of the most effective strategies to prevent heart failure from developing in the first place. Stage A heart failure actually entirely focuses on primary prevention of heart failure in patients who are at high risk. Hypertension, ischemic heart disease, and valvular heart disease remain the most common causes of heart failure, though there are, of course, other causes like genetic cardiomyopathies or exposure to cardiotoxic medications or substances. In the United States, 125 million people have ASCVD, 115 million have hypertension, 100 million have obesity, 92 million have prediabetes, and 26 million have diabetes. And each of these disease states individually puts patients at high risk of developing heart failure. And these numbers really are staggering for how many Americans fall into that at-risk category. The best way to prevent heart failure is to optimize control of these disease states. For example, if a patient has hypertension, get their blood pressure to goal using medications that overlap with GDMT when it's possible and appropriate. If they have diabetes, then work on getting their A1C to goal, ideally using medications with cardiac benefit like SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 agonists when feasible. But in all cases, emphasize the importance of adherence to medications and work with patients to establish healthy lifestyle habits like regular physical activity, healthy eating habits, and not smoking to lower their risk of developing heart failure. Well, Megan, Madison, I'm so grateful that you could be on our show today and for writing the top 10 things every clinician should know about the 2022 heart failure guidelines. The biggest changes over the past few years have included ensuring that most patients with heart failure are receiving an ARNI and an SGLT2 inhibitor, in addition to a beta blocker and an MRA. Well, tell us about some of the changes you've implemented in your practice based on the revised heart failure guidelines. Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments. Be sure to check out our monthly polling questions and vote. And if you're a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, be sure to check out the Evidence-Based Practice Literature Evaluation Series made available through the American Pharmacists Association. iFormerX has partnered with APHA to produce this series, 
which can be used for board recertification credit by ambulatory care pharmacy specialists. To learn more, just click on the link posted below the written commentary on the iFormerX website. And before I sign off today, I want to say thank you to all the PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy residents, like our guest today, Madison Yates, who have contributed to iFormerX over the years, many of whom have continued to contribute following their residency, like our guest today, Megan Supple. iFormerX was started 12 years ago as a way for ambulatory care residents as well as residency directors and preceptors to discuss in an online community of practice the primary literature in a journal club-like format. iFormerX also gives AmCare residents and junior practitioners an opportunity to author a peer-reviewed publication and to participate in the peer review process. So thank you, my friends, for making iFormerX possible. I, I sure hope that iFormerX will continue to give opportunities to ambulatory care residents for years and years to come. Well, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.